1: overwhelmed by investing if you're anything like us the hardest part is getting started that's why we created the investing for beginners podcast our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you We invite guests to demystify investing.
2: At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k.
1: We'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way.
3: A valuation-driven bear
1: market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? Uh, I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the the Investing for Beginners podcast.
3: Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the great white north and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard.
0: John O'Connor stays with us as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-ins Back on uh, June seventeenth of nineteen seventy two several burglars arrested in the office of the Democratic National Committee located of course in the Watergate complex of buildings in washington d c and there was uh, this was of course no ordinary robbery, as John has been telling us the The prowlers were connected to President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, and they had been caught wiretapping phones and stealing documents. And uh, the ensuing ensuing attempted cover-up of the break-in led to President Nixon's eventual resignation in April of 1974. Uh, President Gerald Ford called it the Great National Nightmare. John O'Connor is the the author of The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. So it sounds like you were describing a call-girl ring happening inside the DNC. Well,
3: it was a call-girl referral operation. The people down the street, there was a very vibrant, busy high-class call-girl ring going down in the apartments right down the street. uh, 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 And the CIA was was protecting the call-girl ring. The CIA was already taping the prostitutes and their johns at that call-girl ring. Very prestigious clientele at the call-girl ring.
0: Like a honey trap.
3: A honey trap, exactly. Some used very much for extortion. If you're a Chilean ambassador and you use that place, the white and the uh, CIA tapes you perhaps photographs you they at least were taping you they've got you you know you better start giving the beans to them or your wife is going to know that the government's going to know everybody's going to know and they've got you also there were some at other operations I don't know if at this one but they would also sometimes drug uh, johns but that's another matter that's some of the stuff they were doing at other places I think but Here, I think it was more just extortion, a honeypot, honey trap, but it was illegal. If they got caught doing it, it was illegal. And the deep throat tape that you played was talking about that. These were covert operations the CIA could not possibly have discovered, if they understood what was going on for decades, everybody in the CIA was going to jail. So the CIA had to cover this up. They had every motive to cover this up. Now, what's interesting is the Post did too because their twin sister, their Siamese twin is the DNC. They were very close to them. The Post had started its business as the proud organ of the Democratic Party in 1877. Their relationship with the DNC in 1972 was very close. They shared a general counsel. So when your lawyer is there representing both of you at the same time, you're joined at the hip. That's as close as you can get. And and of course, the lawyer who was representing them himself was a, a big Democrat. Joseph Califano, he had been in uh, LBJ's cabinet. He was with the most prestigious Democratic firm in town. These were the power brokers. So basically, what I'm telling you is, Richard, uh The Post knew just about everything right away. The White House did not. Okay. now, the other thing we've talked about before, we talked about the honeypots and so forth. One of the things that the White House knew is from the monitor what they were listening to. And he talked about how they were listening to explicitly intimate, embarrassing sexual conversations, which had nothing
0: to do with the the Democrats campaign in the upcoming presidential election.
3: Right, exactly. Nothing to do with that. And uh, and so you have that aspect of things. Uh, now, the other thing that the post knew very soon was that the CIA was involved, and we know this from CIA documents that talk brag about how the uh, Woodward had agreed to protect the CIA's cover company. Now, I don't know how many of the audience remembers uh, the Valerie Plame. Fiasco with Scooter Libby, where anyway, CIA officers, when they go to another country, always work under a cover company. They're working for, you know, Apex International and act like they have some job and they're really an agent. Okay. This CIA does this all over the world. They have people undercover just routinely. Well, this company in Washington, D.C., Howard Hunt, one of the burglars worked for, he worked for them full-time and part-time for the White House. He worked for a cover company, which means that he's probably, and he had retired, supposedly retired from the CIA, he was undercover. Okay, and he was working at the White House undercover. The Post knew that uh, almost immediately, that that, that, this was a cover company, and yet they did not tell the public that.
0: If I could just interject, uh, just to give listeners some context, my understanding is: uh, so these Washington Post reporters, Bernstein and um, Woodward, they they discover, or there was a check apparently in one of the burglars' pocket that was signed by E. Howard Hunt. So then, when they find out Hunt works for the CIA, that's at at least that's the narrative in all the president's men. That's the White
3: House. No, for the White House, they Ah. learned that he worked for the White House. Right. In other words. Uh, They discover the check with Howard Hunt has made a $6.16 check made out to his country club. Then then Woodward is told by Deep Throat that one of the burglars had his phone number with WH next to it. Sounds like White House. Uh, Woodward calls that number and it's the switchboard of the White House. And so Woodward is blown away. I mean, this is very exciting. There's no doubt it's exciting stuff. Here's a guy caught. He's it. He, it's Howard Hunt and he's across the hotel in the hotel and they think they've gotten out of there. And it turns out one of the burglars betrays him. It was very sloppy uh, covert practice, but nonetheless, Woodward then calls up that Monday, I think, and gets Howard Hunt at the white house and Hunt is just blown away that Woodward's got his name. And so, you know, he said something like good God. <laughs> and so it, you can't make this up. So now Woodward is really on something. And I, I, I understand why. And it looks like it's a big breakthrough. One of the burglars works at the White House. Uh, now, uh, so it looks like everything looks like, and then one of the guys that gets discovered is this G. Gordon Liddy who works for the campaign as the lawyer for the campaign. So you have a guy from the White House running this and a guy from the campaign running this. So it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, waddles like a duck. It looks like the Nixon administration has just burgled um, the DNC, and they had. They had. Now, the question is who authorized it, how how far down it went, and why they were doing it. Once you get into those details, the story changes. But if you look at it facially, boy, this is a great plot for a movie. You can't (laughs) make it up, and that's why All the President's Men is a wonderful movie. It's my favorite movie. And yet I don't know how a lot of it is untrue, or at least the implications are untrue, but some of these facts cannot be denied. The CRP, the committee, to, or the CREEP, the committee to react to the president is involved in this. A White House consultant is involved in this. It's against the Democrats, right, as a, uh, the convention is coming up and an election is coming up. It's an election year. The campaign cash, they soon find out, is used to finance this thing. So for somebody like me, I'm a, I'm a beginning lawyer in San Francisco. I said, oh, my God, the White House did this. Let's go after the White House. Come on, you guys. And uh, But the public seemed somewhat uninterested for a while. It was OK. They thought it was just another little thing. OK, big deal. The White House called it a third-rate burglary. Nobody, Richard, in the public was really too bent out of shape by this. I was. Uh, because I wanted to be a prosecutor. I thought there are a million federal crimes here. But the public was not interested. And then all of a sudden, this these headlines in October of 72, five months after the burglary, the thing exploded. I was blown away. I was following this every day. And all of a sudden, you get this reporting that Watergate is really part of a bigger campaign of spying and sabotage. now, The facts of this burglary seem like, oh, my God, there's something sinister going on here. What's going on? And we're kept in suspense. We don't know, as part of the public, what's going on here. So it is really a very, very um, engaging uh, deal when you are someone like me, and I think I'm an intelligent observer. I've been to law school. I'm going to be a prosecutor. I'm a practicing lawyer. My dad was involved in politics. This is right up my alley. My dad's partner was in the Nixon administration. So I look at this and I think this is just incredible. Now, uh, and and then slowly, as this sensational reporting gets more and more sensational, things start to crack. But before, as it turns out, the key explosive reporting came when my client, Mark Felt, went into the garage Deep with Bob Woodward, and that's the movie that is so makes it so interesting because this whole thing exploded because of that first garage meeting, uh, and and Wood and and Deep Throat sat on the floor with Woodward for seven hours to try to tie everything together. He needed to do this so the Post would publish the story. Uh, my client wanted the story published because the FBI felt like they were being unduly restricted in the investigation, and they were. Uh, so. He, Uh, felt was trying to get public pressure just to let them do what they need to do and let the chips fall where they may. My client was not, actually, he liked Richard Nixon, uh, was not anti-Nixon, thought Nixon was good on law and order. Uh, He was not trying to get rid of Nixon. He was, as some people posit, that, oh, he's just a guy that was out to knife him. No. He felt that his bureau was being obstructed in what they could do. And much like the, I wish somebody would have come out when Hillary Clinton was making these deals with Russia on the uranium, but nobody came out. It never got publicized. So nobody's the wiser. So what he did was really very much heroic. It was, he was taking a chance with his job, uh, but he felt he had to do it. He knew that it didn't look good for an FBI agent to be going to a garage with a reporter, but he had to explain to Woodward what was up. And Woodward was not a real quick study on this. And nobody in the post was. They didn't get it. They didn't get what Felt was telling them. And he had to sit down and
0: step by feed.
3: step take them through it.
0: Spoon feed them. Um, spoon. Okay. I want to uh, – so many amazing threads here. Um, I just – I don't know if you've seen it. I just finished watching. It's a seven-part series and done, which I like, these little mini-series on uh, on Amazon Prime. Uh, called Gaslit, with Julia Roberts playing Martha Mm -hmm. Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General John Mitchell. Sean Penn is amazing. He's unrecognizable as John Mitchell. Uh, And um, uh, Shea Wiggum is brilliant as G. Gordon Liddy. He's, at turns, he's comical and then terrifying, as Liddy was. I mean, he was clownish, but he was also scary. So it's an amazing cast. But they make... They make McCord look like a complete buffoon. They make, well, Liddy is over the top and he was over the top, but they make McCord look like the complete buffoon. And the reason he had to put the tape back on in this version is he forgot something. They get inside and then he realizes, oh, I didn't bring the wiretap or whatever it was. So he has to exit the building and then he puts the tape back on. So I don't know if that's if that is what happened. But the fact that they made them all look like – and E. Howard Hunt, they made him look like a fool as well, clownish, because obviously it's Hollywood and they're all left-leaning Democrats. They want to they make these guys look like complete buffoons. But
3: were they? Well, actually not. The funny thing about it is uh, – now, some of the practices like leaving, you know, they, they were very sloppy in their tradecraft, I will say that. Like somebody having a check of Howard Hunt, they had their hotel room keys on him. They should have cleaned the burglars of any in information so that nobody would know who they were, okay? They wouldn't know where they're staying. They wouldn't be able to search their rooms. All this stuff uh, sort of blew up the whole deal. So that's one thing. The second thing, but remember, because what I'm telling you here is the CIA had infiltrated this, uh, led to one of the biggest mistakes that th- they, they fooled Liddy. Liddy was a dupe. He was a crazy man, but he's also a dupe. He was brilliant in some aspects and just off his rocker in others and just stupid in others.
0: Right. He thought Uh, they were genuinely in there to gather intel on the dams. He didn't realize that the CIA had other motives.
3: Yes. And he didn't even realize what information they were seeking. He didn't know. He didn't understand what was really going on. He was being lied to all the time. The first burglary was not about Larry O'Brien. That was a lie to him. The second one, he knew they were trying to get oppo dirt, but didn't understand what oppo dirt they were looking for. He thought it was oppo political dirt as on the campaign. In fact, it was oppo dirt. The debt had to do with the whorehouse, with the call girl ring. What did the call girls know about Republicans? Who was using the call girl operation? Okay, but Liddy did not know that. He knew they were going after oppo dirt. So Uh, Now, in terms of the bungling of this, when Liddy, uh, when the when the thing was busted that night, Liddy went home to his wife and said, I'm going to jail. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to jail because I left on the team. James McCord. James McCord was the security director of the campaign to reelect the president, supposedly. And this shows you the CIA's pernicious infiltration for five months, supposedly. Hunt had been looking for a so-called wireman, the guy to do the wiretapping. There are probably 5,000 retired wiremen in Washington, D.C., from the CIA, and probably 20,000 from other agencies, from the Army. They're all living living in D.C. You could have gotten a wireman. But supposedly for five months, Hunt was looking for a wireman for Liddy and couldn't find one, so he had to use McCord. Well, McCord was the security director of the CRP. And one uh, part of tradecraft is you, you, you always have – you should be double-blind, but you should at least be single-blind. In other words, double-blind means you don't know who you're, who's hiring you and, and so forth. And, and, and anyway, now and, – and, and nobody who, inter- who arrests you can know – can, can – Right. Not only,
0: not only that, but McCord was very familiar with Martha Mitchell – and Martha Mitchell would later recognize the name right in the LA Times newspaper. We'll get into that.
3: Right, 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 right. So he was, he was, he, he was, and Mitch, Martha Mitchell was no fan of his. And he was on the security detail along with this guy, the monitor Baldwin, who both were taking care of Martha Mitchell. But McCord, by McCord being on the burglary team, if there was an arrest, it's, it's a shining light on the CRP. Here, here, they're supposed to be devoid of all these identifying characteristics. One guy works for the CRP. They get arrested, jig is up. Liddy said, boy, I was stupid. I had McCord on the team. Well, the bungling, they make it look like it's bungling, but this isn't bungling, Richard. This has a design to it. McCord has to stay on the team if you're gonna fool your bosses about what's happening. You need somebody on the team to pull all your dirty stunts and to lie to Liddy and to tell him you've wiretapped uh, a guy that you haven't wiretapped, to say that you've bought a, a device you haven't bought, to say what you're really doing. So you needed McCord on there, and Hunt knew he had to have McCord on there. You see, and so uh, while while it looks like it's bungling, it's all a result of the fact that the CIA needed CIA people in there to control things. So. Uh, And the CIA didn't really care. Uh, Well, I don't want to say they didn't care because they felt they had authorization to do this. They always had a defense that this was an authorized operation by the president of the United States through his agents, because John Dean had approved it. And they'd heard that Mitchell had. Mitchell hadn't, but they thought Mitchell had. Liddy thought Mitchell had approved this. So it looked like it was a For the CIA's purpose, it looks like a presidential-authorized national security covert clandestine operation, and that's the way they were always going to defend themselves. So their purposes are not the same as Liddy's. They don't care so much if they get caught, and as a matter of fact, later on, 10 years down the line, when Congress discovers they're doing all this stuff, the CIA can say, well, we had our CIA guy in there, McCord. We had... Hunt, the president approved of all this. This is an approved operation. So they even liked the fact that a CIA guy was on the team, because it would help them in their get out of jail card whenever this this operation got discovered. And they, of course, the CIA would later use this operation as cleansing other illegal operations. Well, the White House said we could do all this. And so sure, we went out and we wiretapped 10 other operations. Uh, but this was all part of this deal that the White House had authorized. So, for example, with Liddy's $30,000, they didn't buy a $30,000 bug. What did they buy? They bought six bugs that would uplink to a satellite. Those bugs were still on order when they were arrested. Now, if in the future those bugs showed up someplace else, those bugs would then be identified as being bought by the White House and by campaign money because you could trace the checks. Those bugs. These six bugs that were on order uplinked to a satellite. Now, nobody had satellites back in 1972, except the intelligence agencies. And this particular satellite, these bugs were were, uh, geared to hook up to the CIA satellite that that the CIA had. You could prove that these bugs that were on order were for the CIA. So let's say those six bugs later on were planted in six different Uh, call girl extortion operations. Congress calls you in, no, this is what was authorized. We're supposed to do this all over the place. We told the people in the White House what we were doing and they authorized this. This is a national security operation because we want to find out who's betraying our country. And the only way we can do it is find out what they're talking about to prostitutes. Mitchell. I've had some disturbing news, sir. Watergate,
0: uh, security guards busted
3: it wide open. The next 48 hours are going to be
0: crucial. I don't know how to put this uh We're wondering about your wife.
2: Y'all going to just stand around and you want to ask me some questions? You,
1: me. you work for Martha Mitchell's husband? Yeah. She's completely insane. Loud mouth. She's a truth teller. Unreliable.
2: I love her. You don't own me.
1: I told
0: you, to no more interviews.
2: It's a ladies' magazine. I will say how I feel, and if that gets me banned off Air Force One, I will fly commercial. So you were banned from Air Force One. <laughs> You're good. You can just keep your mouth shut. We'll be fine. If the American people knew half of what I do, they wouldn't have much to approve of.
1: The loud-mouth interviews just becoming too much of a liability.
0: That is from Gaslit, a trailer for the uh, Amazon Prime series starring Julia Roberts as Martha Mitchell, Sean Penn as uh, John Mitchell, and uh, Shea Wiggum as uh, G. Gordon Liddy. Now here uh, in this tale, this version, which is Watergate through the eyes of the Mitchells and also John Dean, they seem to be implicating John Mitchell. You're saying really he was—he didn't know.
3: John Mitchell was not involved at all. He was horrified when he investigated post-burglary arrests, and he called it a chamber of horrors. He was completely straight. He is the most badly maligned person in Watergate. Other people share different levels of guilt about different things that came out at Watergate. He's the only guy that is innocent of all things, and yet... (laughs) (laughs) you know, he's getting, he's getting it. Uh, He died a broken man. Uh, You know, he said his real problem was people, the people he chose to be around. And uh, I feel very sorry for him. And I always thought that at the time, even back in the days when I wanted everybody in the Nixon administration to go to jail, I felt even then that the case against Mitchell was extremely weak. And if it hadn't been for all the Watergate Fuhrer, you know, he should have walked. Nonetheless, I'm sure the show is good and it's got good actors. And I think you're right. The The makeup they use on Sean Penn is just stunning. Martha Mitchell, of course, the mouth of the South, as they called her, was a person who was kind of a lively person who was fond of the drink, as we say in Ireland. And, uh, you know, and, and so she had good instincts that her husband Certainly felt under siege once these uh, arrests occurred, and she of course recognized the shadowy figure of McCord. But the fact is, Mitchell—he was disgusted by the whole thing, the way it happened—and uh, and it's it's really sort of a shame. But makes for interesting TV, and I, I I can't wait to see the way they do Liddy and these folks. I think it it should be wonderful, and I, everybody says it's a great series.
0: Yeah, you're going to enjoy it, I think. Uh, Martha Mitchell, a, a very tragic figure, because you know she tried to stand by her husband, but as you say, the mouth. She she loved the limelight. She loved being on with Barbara Walters, and she became the darling and uh, of the media as long as she was, you know, bad mouthing Richard Nixon. Uh, but it really, I mean, it tore the the, the family apart. It, it destroyed the family and destroyed her ultimately. I mean, she died a broken woman as well, penniless, I think.
3: Right. Yeah, uh, she perfected the art of what we call drunk dialing. And that's what she did. She drunk dialed all the time. She was always drunk and it became a a great caricature. She would show up on TV with a big phone and people would make fun of it. Uh, But she really was just uh, crazed. There was one incident that that just came out recently that it turns out when John Mitchell had had enough and he wasn't hanging around her, uh, he hadn't really left her, but uh, she invited Woodward to come in and look at all her husband's papers, including his attorney-client, Papers and Woodward came in and looked at him, and you look at that stuff and you say, "My God, these guys got away with a lot of things. These reporters got away with a lot." That's really—I hate to say it—that's probably criminal conduct uh, to do that. And uh, but nonetheless, he did it, and uh, all things were excused
0: when the burglars were put on trial, and uh, Judge Sarika was going to give them like the maximum, like thirty years for this third-rate burglary. But he wanted to make an example, I guess, of them. And um, McCord um, basically spilled the beans, right? He wrote a letter to Sarika, uh, claiming he perjured himself. At least this is the Hollywood version. You tell me if I'm wrong. Claiming he perjured himself and that uh, this was um, this was not, um, you know, a, a, a
3: White House operation. It was part of a greater, a, a wider conspiracy. Is that- well, he did blame it. He did blame it. He came out and blamed the White House. Is what he did mccord did but let me tell you what happened mccord had written several notes to the white house through his contact uh, the detective there named john caulfield and one of them he said if you get rid of richard helms that's the director of the cia every tree in the forest will fall now nixon suspected the cia was in this up to their necks but couldn't of course prove it because that's their job is not to allow you to prove it have plausible deniability. And so Nixon shipped Helms out at, in January 1973 to be ambassador of Iran, and her, Helms burnt all his documents and all the tapes he had. He had thousands of hours of tapes. <coughs> and, and of course, that's exactly what McCord thought shouldn't happen. He was warning the White House. And so when it came time for McCord sentencing in late March of 1973, Probably we all should have been yelling timber because those trees were going to fall. So what happened was it was a strategy whereby the CIA would come unleashed, come unglued on the White House so that they would not be uncovered. So when McCord writes this dramatic letter to Sirica, Sirica loves it because Sirica during the trial thinks somebody in the White House has authorized these burglaries and nobody's talking about it. People don't know that McCord's a CIA agent, really a CIA agent, an undercover guy, an infiltrator. They don't know that. So McCord comes out with this dramatic letter, and everybody goes, gasp, oh, amazing. He's just unleashed. He said there was perjury at the trial. Well, there was, and other things. But he lays it all out on the White House. And of course, he has fired his regular lawyer, who was a very good lawyer. He was the partner of F. Bailey. Uh, And uh, he hired a guy that wasn't a criminal lawyer, but he was connected to the CIA, a guy named Bud Fensterwald. And so he and Fensterwald went together on this uh, plan to now turn everybody's attention as the cover up is cracking to the White House. It works. It works. Now, most of what McCord said was hearsay, but nonetheless, it works. Now, remember what I had told you before that Dean and Magruder, I thought were behind this, right? One of the first things McCord says, and I think it's to to somebody who interviews him, he said, Oh yeah, Dean and Magruder were authorized this. Okay. Now, guess what? What do you do if you're in John Dean's situation and you realize <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm next guy that's gonna be and what do you do? Turn over. You turn over and all of a sudden you're a Boy Scout caught in bad company. Oh, my gosh, Mrs. Cleaver. I didn't mean to do this, but I'm going to tell because I really have been very upset about this for a long time. I'm going to talk about. There's a cancer on the presidency. There's a cancer on the presidency. (laughs) Oh, yes, that's exactly it. When Dean went in to tell him that he did that as a last ditch effort on May 21st, McCord's letter to the court is May 23rd. He hasn't named Dean yet. Okay, Dean is still undercover. Nobody understands what Dean is all about, but on March 21, he comes into Nixon's office, says there's a cancer on the presidency. Why does he say that? He says that to try to get Nixon to claim broad executive and attorney-client privilege so that John Dean never has to testify. If Dean has to testify, now he's got a choice of perjuring himself or whatever, and he doesn't know who's going to come in and get him and get him for perjury,
0: but didn't Haldeman ask Dean to, to conduct his own investigation? And Dean thought, well, if I do that, now I'm, I'm really, you know, up.
3: Well, because- yes and no. Actually, the president had kept talking about the Dean investigation, as it, and it's going to clear the White House. What had happened was Dean had told everybody at the beginning that nobody in the White House was involved. But guess who was involved that was with the White House? John Dean. <laughs> John Dean. <laughs> so he was telling Nixon that, and then Nixon would tell the reporters, Oh, I've got John Dean's, the Dean report will do this and that. Well, right around March, Nixon, and maybe Haldeman did also, had him go to Camp David to supposedly write the Dean report. Well, Dean, if he wrote it down, it would just be a lie. He knew the thing was going to crack, and he also knew very quickly that McCord was going to nail him. Okay? McCord had him. Okay? And he was, and it was hearsay, but it was pretty. You know, you you could probably link it by conspiratorial statements to uh, to Dean. Hunt had pleaded guilty at Dean's advice, and Dean didn't realize that meant that Hunt was also subject to be called to the grand jury. He would have to finger Dean. Dean knew his time was up if he didn't get Nixon to protect him and pay off Hunt. He wanted Hunt paid off, and he wanted Nixon to assert privilege. Once that didn't happen. Then McCord starts blowing his, his deal. Dean had to hustle fast. So he, he, he's already hired a lawyer. He goes over, starts turning state's evidence.
0: Did he finger Mitchell? What? Did he finger Mitchell?
3: He did not. He originally, but Magruder did. Magruder quickly understood that he better have, because, um, Dean could bring Nixon to the prosecutors on the cover up. Okay. Um. Dean might have had some weak, weak idea that, Nick's, that Mitchell, had, and he hadn't, I think, I, I'm not clear if he ever claimed falsely that Mitchell had confessed to him, uh, but he wouldn't be able to finger Mitchell as authorizing the thing. Magruder's get out of jail card was that Mitchell told me to do it. Because you see, if Magruder, if, if, if Magruder said Dean did it, Dean had me. Then both Dean and Magruder were, looked like the bad guys, which they were. If in others, if, if Magruder didn't finger Mitchell, but Magruder, it's natural he fingers his boss. That gets him Mitchell. The prosecutors love that. He lays off Dean. Okay. Meanwhile, Dean goes to Nixon. D- 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 Dean lays off Magruder. Magruder lays off Dean. Dean gets Nixon. Uh, Magruder gets Mitchell. And and Dean and Magruder look like little choir boys. They're both good-looking guys, and they paint themselves as being really just aw shucks. We got caught up with these bad men.
0: John, got to take another time out. John O'Connor, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Uh, if you want to get the real history of Watergate, this is the one as we mem- uh, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. Back with more in a minute.
1: I'm Andrew Gold, a fallen BBC journalist interviewing the heretics and rebels brave enough to speak out against mainstream narratives. Here's Coleman Hughes, John Ronson, and the Trigonometry podcast guys bringing controversy to the fore. How do you feel if a person of a different race moved in next door? I spent a while with a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan. The system punishes people for wrong think. It's heartbreaking. Here's My Unorthodox Life Netflix star Julia Hart on getting out of a Hasidic Jewish cult.
0: Why can't I be okay with being silent and subservient? Everyone else
1: is. And biologist Richard Dawkins on trans activism. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm a man, but I feel feminine. But to then say, therefore I am a woman, is just a betrayal of language. Now it's your turn rebel against the mainstream and find a home in this sensible alternative space by subscribing to heretics podcast. This podcast is sponsored by ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this for the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet ramp. The only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money. So you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC Terms and Conditions Supply. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: A trusted sponsor of my show, GetTheT.com, is having their summer sale. Hey guys, let's talk about Father's Day. What kind of gift would you like to give your dad? Why not think about a gift that would help his digestion? Remember, Life Change Tea is an amazing gentle cleanse that he can use daily for gut health. Who doesn't need that? I know I do. I drink it every day. It comes in three different flavors. Natural, peppermint, and my favorite, pomegranate. You need to try it. The combination of 12 herbs just does a beautiful number on my insides. Right now, they're having their big summer sale. Buy three, get one free. That's right. Buy three, get one free. Life Change Tea is not a fad. They've been around since 2007, helping thousands of people. And it's made right in the USA. It's easy to brew, keep it in your fridge, and you drink it daily. It's summertime, and I always want to have a big glass of iced tea. That's why I drink Life Change Tea. Buy now and get one month of tea for free. Go to getthetea.com forward slash Richard to order yours today. Use the code Richard10 to get an additional $10 off plus free shipping. That's over $50 in savings. Again, that's getthetea.com forward slash Richard and use the code Richard and the number 10, Richard10 for $10 more plus free shipping. Don't miss out.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet.
3: And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got.
0: There you go. Uh, He made that statement at Disneyland, of all places. (laughs) How appropriate. Uh, Richard Nixon, of course, and then would uh, resign, well, not too long after that, in August of 1974, not for the break-in, but for the cover-up. And let's talk about Deep Throat because you uh, represented Mark Felt much later. Was it after he was identified as the deputy director? We didn't know who Deep Throat was for the longest time, for decades.
3: My role was back when I was a young man in San Francisco. I, made, I had a fetish of figuring out who Deep Throat was. I was an aspiring prosecutor and eventually became a junior prosecutor. By the time that Woodward's and Bernstein's book came out identifying the shadowy character Deep Throat. I was a prosecutor and I made it my mission to figure out who Deep Throat was. And by 1976, I felt I could prove his identity to a unanimous jury beyond a reasonable doubt. That's how clear I was on the proof. Now, at the time, I thought, who's going to believe this junior guy in San Francisco? And so I just Let it drop. I was getting married, left the office, and uh, it was uh, 30 years later, 25 years later, I suppose, that I'm sitting in the chair I'm in right now, looking across the table at uh, a young fellow, and uh, he tells me, just in passing, my dad was an FBI agent. He says, well, his grandfather's an FBI agent. And I said, well, what's your grandfather's name? Oh, it's Mark Felt. Well, yeah. here I am 25 years later, I have all this knowledge. And I say, well, your your grandfather's deep throat. I think I know why he's not talking. Let me come up and talk to him. I think I can talk him into admitting he's deep throat. I think I can talk him into coming out because I know what he's thinking. And I think I can disabuse him of some notions. And so that's how it all started. So I started talking to Mark with the his daughter's approval, Nick's mother's approval. And uh, we're still to this day and uh, carrying the torch for Mark. It's just been something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and now it's going on 50 years uh, that I've been in, involved in this. Um, I, I started my first job the day, the first Monday after the arrest, the Watergate arrest. And I was just fascinated by this.
0: How did you convince I mean, you were the one that then convinced Mark Felt to come out as Deep Throat. What did you say to him?
3: Well, I started out by saying, and this took a while, Richard, but I, I started out by saying when I, I was introduced by, by Joan as being a family friend, and then I qualified myself. I said I was a U.S. attorney. I know, I knew his motives. He was a Justice Department guy, an FBI guy. He wanted to keep the system pure. So I knew that. I knew his motives. And you've got to, if you're gonna figure out who somebody is, you've got to know their motives. Uh, means motive opportunity. You learn their motives. And so I knew his motives. He wanted the story out to protect the Justice Department from any accusation that they had whitewashed the Watergate investigation. He cared about the FBI deeply and its reputation. So when I met him, I qualified as an FBI guy. I said, Mark, my dad was an FBI agent. Oh, oh, is that right? I said, yeah, he chased German spies like you did. Oh, great. And I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Oh, great, great, great. And I worked with the FBI all the time. Oh, great. And my good friend is Bob Mueller. He was the head of the FBI. Oh, yeah, Bob. Oh, yeah. And my dad's partner, Bill Ruckelshaus, I worked for in Washington for Bill Ruckelhaus. Yeah, Bill Ruckelhaus was the interim head of the FBI after Patrick Gray got in trouble. My dad's partner was his boss, was Mark's boss. So I identified myself, and he thought, oh, this is a great guy. I'm talking to an FBI guy here, John O'Connor. And then I said, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about Deep Throat, this fellow Deep Throat, Mark. And as soon as I did this, he grabbed his chair, his knuckles got white, his jaw stuck out. and, And then I started on, I said, and the reason we young prosecutors love this guy Deep Throat is because he kept our system pure. He kept it from being corrupted. We cared about that. We were prosecutors. My FBI, young FBI agents felt the same way. This deep throat is a hero. He was wonderful. And as I did this, it was like I was letting a man out of jail. It's like I was giving him a sinner absolution. And his grip loosens and his eyes start to melt. He's got these beautiful blue eyes, even when he's 89 years old. And he starts to melt. And it's like he's just in my thrall. and His daughter and son-in-law are on the daybed next to us. They can't believe this because every time you bring up Deep Throat for the past 30 years, he would adamantly deny it. Now, here he is talking to this guy, and he seems to be... Now, what I did was I pulled a trick. I was talking about Deep Throat in the third person. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour...
0: In this office. There you go, August of 1974, Watergate, the scandal that uh, for the first time forcibly removed a president from the uh, the Oval Office in the history of the United States. 50 years ago, it all began. June 17th, with the arrest at 2.30 in the morning of the uh, Watergate burglars. John O'Connor is with us, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. We're talking about how you convinced W. Mark Felt, who was the deputy director of the FBI, who was also the uh, the whistleblower known as Deep Throat. We're familiar with that character, of course. Hal Holbrook played him in All the President's Men. So you convinced him, uh, you know, portraying yourself as uh, loyal to the FBI and how prosecutors and the FBI uh, felt that, Deep Throat was a hero because he was, his motive was to keep the justice system pure. And that's why he was leaking this information to the Washington Post.
3: And that's exactly why he didn't want to ever be revealed because he thought the real law enforcement type guys would look down on him. So I wanted to qualify myself as a law enforcement guy. And then I would say the younger law enforcement guys like me that are now not so young approve of you. He cared about their disapproval. That's why he stayed in the closet. He knew that regular people would think he's heroic, but law enforcement people wouldn't. And I was trying to convince him because I knew that I figured this out. Uh, Most people didn't know who Deep Throat was. I knew it was him. It wasn't some noble person from the White House, as many suspected. It wasn't Diane Sawyer. So I switched the third person to the second person. And I said, so you, Mark, should come out and tell your story before Woodward does, because you can tell your story in the way that emphasizes your heroism and your good motives. And as I said that, he's sitting like this. "Hmm." And meanwhile, his daughter and grandson are just blown away. Their mouths are agape. This is the guy that kept denying angrily he was deep throat, and he's listening to me, and this guy is clearly buying my program. Now, at the end of it, he said, well, I'll think about what you say, and I'll give you my answer soon. Well, he would only give, and I was telling you that he had to come out and tell his story. Well, you could only do that. You would only consider giving the answer if you were deep throat, and he didn't angrily deny it. Now, because he had you know, some dementia. once I left him, he kind of forgot a lot of the things I said, and just but I had stirred up a hornet's nest, and he would tell his caretaker, an FBI agent just doesn't act like this. I can't come out. I can't do it." And we went through this for a while, okay. We went through it for a while, but um, eventually, you know, it took a while, and his all his defenses were hardwired, even after he started admitting it, and and Joan and I were on him. And so forth, and we would do all kinds of things to get him to admit he never really had said it. It took him a couple of weeks. And I've got a tape of mine someplace the first time he said, you know, they admitted he was deep throat, at least he had just admitted to Joan, the day before, um, when an old girlfriend called and admitted to Joan that uh, that Mark had admitted it to him, uh, a romantic at a a romantic night when mark was leaving for california and leaving her in dc her grandchildren in dc his were in california uh end to a romance but they both had to stay with their grandkids so um he told her it was sort of a romantic going away present i want to let you know i'm deep throat and they had romantic letters after that and she saved them all and she was going into dementia and she had all her letters out on the bed apparently so i talked to her I realized she was going dingy, you know, and she probably wasn't, unfortunately, was lost to me as a witness because she was no longer reliable uh, as I tried to prove it to people. Then I had like it took a couple of years to try to get anybody to bite off on the story. I mean, I could prove it. I could go through my proof and people seem to buy it, but they don't like they don't understand what lawyers understand that circumstantial evidence is more powerful than. You know, somebody coming up and saying, yes, I did it.
0: Just got a couple of minutes here, John. Uh, Let's go back to your previous book, Postgate, how the Washington Post covered up Watergate, betrayed Deep Throat and began today's um, partisan and advocacy journalism. How did the Washington Post betray
1: Deep Throat?
3: Well, they did it for some years and are continuing to do it today uh woodward made four protective promises to deep Throat, one of which he would never tell the world that he had a secret source of any kind then he becomes the most uh important secret source ever known and that's exactly what woodward promised him he wouldn't do he wouldn't say he had a secret source and he he also said he would never name him well he was going to name him when mark died that's one of the ways i talked mark into coming out woodward's going to name you you don't you know, Mark cared about the FBI, not about him. It's not okay for Mark to die and for him to go spill the secret that just besmirches the FBI. That's completely contrary to what Mark thought the agreement was. Now that's one betrayal. Then, then Richard, they uh, when he uh, did um, uh, black bag jobs, ser- searches on the Weather Underground and the PLO, the Washington Post urged that he be indicted. And and because they didn't understand what we today called FISA searches. And he got indicted. And the Post cheered for his conviction. And he got convicted. And the judge had given some instructions. It was like a kangaroo court because the Post was all over him. He was the guy that
0: made the Washington Post, (laughs) really, because of his information.
3: And now I'll tell you something else. Because of his trial and what his anxious wife went through, she killed herself. Oh, dear. I'm not making this up. She killed herself with his service revolver. The Post did this. I'm sorry. The Post did it. Now, why was FISA passed? Do you know about FISA? We've been through this. FISA was passed to protect people like Mark Felt. That's why it was passed, because everyone understood. It used to be the FBI did this on its own judgment, and you didn't have bureaucracy. Now you've introduced the bureaucracy of FISA, which protects people that shouldn't be protected, but also induces bureaucratic delays, which caused 9-11. 9-11 was caused by FISA and the uh, bureaucratic slowness of getting a warrant approval. Meanwhile, we have Zacharias Musai's computer that would have stopped that the FBI wanted to open, but they couldn't do it because FISA grinds slowly. Now we have James Comey using FISA as a way of spying on the White House. You can't make this up, but all of this comes from them betraying him. Now I come along later on and try to get the post to, uh cooperate with me, Woodward. They won't do it. Uh, and I go through a lot of stuff in Postgate, other things of betrayal, but I will assure you assure you that there are more betrayals than the ones I've just told you. And this is someone who has made their paper, made them billions of dollars. And needless to say, they do not like my book very much and are not really happy to publicize it. But if you want to know about the Washington Post, read Postgate. If you want to know about Watergate, read The Mysteries of Watergate. They both are fascinating in their own way if you don't want to learn about journalism don't read my post book postgate if you just want to know about watergate uh the mysteries of watergate will suffice and i tell talk a little bit about the post in there and how important it was that they for them that they didn't publicize some of the things i'm telling you today
0: all right, so Postgate, how the Washington Post betrayed Deep Throat, covered up Watergate, and began today's partisan advocacy journalism. You can uh, find that at postgatebook.com. You can also subscribe to the fabulous podcast, The Mysteries of Watergate, and of course, the brand new, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened, uh, the, uh, the, the the book, also available. John, what a, uh, a delight. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much.
3: Well, I had some fun talking to you, Richard. You what's good about your show is you develop long conversations and you have sequential thought. And it's very good for our, uh, for our conversations, our public conversations that you have hosts that can do that. So I I just give you great kudos. Thank you so much, John O'Connor.
1: A new Richard Serrett's Strange
3: Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.